If you will, uh, take your Bibles and uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. And uh, we're going to be uh, reading uh, verses 39 to 56. I'm going to invite Kyle Morano up at this time to uh, read for us from the Scriptures. And so I would invite you to stand together as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is your child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, and the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm, and he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning, for gathering us here in this place, gathering under your authority, under your lordship. So we come to submit our lives to you. We thank you for uh, this story that for many might be very familiar as we recount each year the story of your coming to us. I just pray that as we look at these women, uh, the lives of Mary and Elizabeth, as they reflect on and marvel at the glory of your coming, I pray that it would draw us to behold you today, to see you as, as, as glorious, as great, and to have a, an accurate understanding of, of what has taken place in the world, that your coming into this world changes everything. Pray that it would draw us to worship, to praise, and just to uh, recognize how much we have been given. So uh, we commit this time to you, ask your spirit to do with us as you please, and we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. You can have a seat. I think I've asked this before, but uh, I want to ask you, how many of you uh, would say that you love Christmas music? You love it? It's like the best thing. Can't wait until the season you can start playing it. Yes, great. How many of you uh, would actually say, meh, I'm not a, not a huge fan of Christmas music? We got, we got a few of you in here, yeah, okay. Not quite as many. So not to be a Scrooge, but uh, I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with uh, Christmas music. And uh, there's, there, there's some of it that's, that's tremendous. Some of the hymns that we sing are, are beautiful and glorious, but there's this whole category of Christmas music that is just frankly annoying. I don't know how else to put it. Um, it's songs like this. I got a few examples. It's, uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Everywhere you go, take a look at the five and ten. It's glistening once again with candy canes and silver lanes that glow. I don't know what that means, but uh, don't enjoy singing about it. Uh, what about it's the most wonderful time of the year with kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer because who doesn't want that, right? 
Uh, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap happiest season of all with those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. That song makes uh, it sound like Christmas has got to be a, an introvert's worst nightmare, right? <laughs> but uh, then, then you have uh, the song, which, which might be the worst, is Deck the Halls, right? Deck the Halls with boughs of holly, and then in the most uncreative lines ever, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la. Tis the season to be jolly, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la. Which I don't know about you, I, I don't know anybody who's ever setting up Christmas decorations and saying fa-la-la. Like, like when I'm putting, trying to wrap lights around a, a pine tree that's freshly cut and I'm getting sap on me and it's poking me and I'm trying to get these lights in some organized fashion, the words that are not coming to mind is fa-la-la. There might be some other words that might be coming to mind, but it's not those words. And I think, I think what, what ultimately kind of bothers me about uh, many of these kinds of songs is that it just feels like they offer kind of false joy kind of cheap happiness. It's like this attempt to say that because Christmas season is so magical, then, then we can just kind of ignore all the difficulties in life and pretend that everything is good. We can dance around and force this happy feeling because, you know, it's snowing outside, the decorations are up, everything's pretty, so let's just, uh, you know, have a good time and, and then get to all the mess of things later. But that's not really life, is it? See, Christmas is not just a, a momentary therapeutic season for a troubled heart. But what makes Christmas beautiful, what makes it amazing, is that Christmas is real hope. It offers authentic joy. And it offers those things against the backdrop of genuine sorrow, of true brokenness, and even deep pain. So I love the prophecy in Isaiah 9 that even Cole read earlier. said, to those who, who are walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. Christmas comes and Jesus arrives as a light in the darkness. And so maybe you come in here on this Advent Sunday and your heart is heavy, like mine has been this week. What, what, what is offered to us in moments like that is not just a few hours of inspirational, light-hearted music and kind of a, an attempt at an uplifting message. But what the advent of Jesus offers you and it offers me is genuine hope and lasting joy, even in our darkest moments, even amidst a world that is, that is, that is, that is seen to have a very real evil and, a, and, a, and, a, and, and things around us that, that we don't understand that don't make sense. And so whether you come in here today with a, with, from, from a place of, of struggle, or whether you come in here, actually, things are going well. It's a time of peace. It's a time of, 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 of joy because it's been a good year. Regardless of where you come in, the, the, the reality of Christmas is it's not just decorating a facade on our lives, but it's the offer of genuine and lasting hope, regardless of where we find ourselves today. And so in this text, we have Mary offering to us not a shallow song of forced glee, but one of the best Christmas songs that has ever been written. It's a song of deep recognition of God's glory and His grace. And in these two women, in, in Mary and Elizabeth, we together are drawn to see our deep need, our need to understand our condition 
And it's only as we understand that place where we are can we actually begin to recognize the magnificence of the incarnation. And so this passage is broken up into into two sections. Verses 39 to 45, I want to draw us to see the humbling power of proximity. And then in verses 46 to 55, I want to see the humble posture of praise. So we see first this humbling power of proximity. Mary, after she has received this news that we looked at last week, this news from the angel Gabriel that she was going to miraculously become pregnant with the very Son of God, what does she do? She, it says, heads off to see Elizabeth. This is her relative. We learned that back in verse 36. Some of your translations might say cousin, but the language isn't that, uh, that precise. But somehow, Mary and Elizabeth are related. And so why does Mary take this long journey immediately to go see Elizabeth? Because if you know the geography, she's, Mary's in Nazareth. She has to travel down to Judah. We don't know the specific town, but it's likely a three-day journey that she takes. And she goes down to see Elizabeth, and she goes because she has been told by the angel, if you remember from last week, she's been told about Elizabeth's child, that Elizabeth is pregnant. She's six months along at this point. And this child that Elizabeth is is carrying, even after she was barren, is also a sign to Mary of what she herself would experience in the miraculous conception of Jesus. And so she goes to Elizabeth to confirm the message that's been given to her. And so her going down to see her, her, her relative is an act of faith to confirm God's word to her. She also likely is, is, is unsure of what is taking place, but it's a pretty crazy story and there's probably not very many people who would really understand what she's going through or even really believe her. And so Elizabeth is actually a grace to Mary as she goes to process with and and share with the only other woman in the world who would understand what she's going through, who even uh, will even believe her. And so she heads down to visit her. And Luke tells us that as soon as Mary arrives and she greets Elizabeth in her house, something incredible happens. It says that the baby in Elizabeth's womb, we know him as John the Baptist, He leaps inside of her. And the text tells us that Elizabeth is then filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, in the Old Covenant age, the Holy Spirit, it doesn't appear that that there was a permanent indwelling of the Spirit, but we see that the Holy Spirit would come upon different individuals at different times to empower them for for a specific task or or call them to give a prophetic word. And here she speaks what is a prophetic word in some sense. And she says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. It says, why is it granted to me, of all people, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And you see, as, as Elizabeth enters into proximity with the incarnate God, even yet in the womb of Mary, it has this incredible humbling effect on her. And together, these women are astonished at what they're experiencing. And so there's a couple things that we, that we have to comment on here as we, as we look at this scene. First, do you realize who the first person to react and rejoice at the news of Mary's miraculous conception? It's an unborn baby. It was just a beautiful thing. It's not a fetus, it's not a potential human, but it's a person made in the image of God, even now fulfilling his role that God had sent him to fulfill to be the forerunner of the Messiah. 
And his jumping and leaping in the womb is a sign and indication to his mother that this is an incredible thing that's taking place. And they respond to it. It's just a reminder to us that life begins in the womb. And even now, God is using an unborn baby to declare who he is. And then we have to deal with these words that Elizabeth utters. These words that may sound very familiar to you, especially if maybe you've come from a Catholic background. Um, these words uh, that, that Elizabeth speaks are, have been part of the Hail Mary prayers of the Catholic Church for many years. And even the words that, that Mary later uh, declares that all generations would call her blessed. So what, what, what are we to make of, of these statements? Does this passage place Mary in kind of a unique moral status as one who is to be venerated and kind of worshipped by the church? I believe that, that that's not the point or intention of this passage, and it's taken way too far to view Mary as one that should be idolized or, or worshipped. But sometimes as Protestants, we can, in wanting to avoid kind of the worship of Mary, can sometimes minimize what's taking place here. And what Mary is granted and what her and Elizabeth, Elizabeth celebrate, celebrate together in this moment is spectacular. It's amazing. And Elizabeth's words here reveal that the significance of this moment is not lost on them. Certainly, Mary is blessed among all women. But she's blessed not because of her, something in her. It's not because of her moral perfection. It's not because of her perpetual virginity. But it's only because God has chosen in His sovereign plan to bring about the, 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 the orchestration of, of human history to this climactic moment where he is entering into it. And of all people, this young, insignificant woman, this girl from the back country, little town of Nazareth of nowhere, is chosen by God to have a crucial role in his plan. Yes, indeed, she has been graciously favored by God, but it's not something that she looks at and makes her think highly of herself, but it causes her only to stare in wonder at what God is doing in her life. <coughs> and it's so amazing that, that, that Elizabeth declares that John inside of her is leaping for joy. And Elizabeth goes on to say that blessed is she who believed that God's word spoken to her would be fulfilled. And Mary's a reminder to us that the path to blessing is believing the word of God. The path to blessing is believing in the Word of God, even when it seems like the path ahead is uncertain, even when it doesn't make sense or it's not the one that we would choose. You know, it's interesting to look at Mary's situation here and to, and to think about how would she be viewed in our society today? How would our society view a woman like Mary in her, in her place? I think many would say, oh, what a, what a sad situation what a young, innocent girl forced to carry this unplanned child. Maybe if she just had more options, we could, she, she could be helped and choose the path for her. But this text tells us that, that, that Mary's path to blessing and flourishing is by believing the Word of God that was delivered to her. Not seeing this as a burden and something that, that, that she has to correct, but something that she is receiving and, and, and embracing as God's plan for her in her life at this time. The path to blessing is believing the Word of God. 
And in this scene, we see these two women, and they are completely amazed by what God is doing through them. And it's when God comes into proximity with them that it has this humbling effect upon them. And it leads them ultimately just to to worship Him. To praise God for His grace that is being poured out. They get a front row seat to the culmination of redemptive history. And so for us today, Mary still stands to us as an example of God's unlikely means to bring His love and His mercy to this world. She is still one that we look at and say, wow, she is incredibly blessed. But that doesn't cause us to worship her or to hail her or to see her as some kind of co-redemptress alongside of Jesus. But we see her simply as a beautiful and a faithful woman who heard the word of God and was willing to say, let it be to me according to your will. And in this reunion, we see that the necessary response that we are to have when we are confronted with the presence of God, when He breaks into our world, when He comes near to us, is to just be humbled by His presence and respond in worship to Him. And it's from that humble place that Mary's song that we're going to look at now is able to usher forth. We see next in verses 46 to 45, this song that has been known historically as the Magnificat. That's a Latin word just meaning to magnify, taken from the first line of her song. In this, we see the humble posture of praise. She begins here by expressing her emotions that have been stirred up by this reality. And she declares, My soul magnifies you, and my soul rejoices in God my Savior. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What is she saying here? She's she's using this this poetic language and the parallelism here to just try to articulate this, this, this reality of her innermost being that is drawn to behold the greatness of God. And when she recognizes the greatness of God and what He's doing through her, it causes her just to usher forth in praise. And it's true that praise is born out of a heart and a mind that recognize the greatness of His thing. And it's when you, when you recognize how magnificent and how awesome and how, how, how magnificent something is that you just stand in awe at it. If you've ever, ever had the opportunity to, to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon or peak a 14er, you don't, feel, you don't feel big in those moments, right? You don't feel like, like, like you're everything. You just are, are amazed at just the vastness and the size of these things and it leaves you in the state. It humbles you and causes you just to marvel at what you're seeing and what you're taking in. And so Mary and, and, and Elizabeth in this moment, they are just beholding this work of God, this marvelous work. And it's just a reminder to us in a season that is marked by incredible busyness of chaos, right? There's so many parties. I think we, we went to two or three parties this week in our own family just trying to get gifts, trying to get things. We could be so stressed and, and just consumed with all the things that we try to do just because of the, just all the cultural aspects that kind of shape and color this season. But do we actually have the time like these women to just take it in, to to reflect on, to, to recognize what has been done in human history, the coming and breaking in of God in human form? Because only as we have the time and the opportunity to see it can it humble us and put us in a place where we can actually respond in praise like these women. 
And it's her next lines that tell us why she is so overwhelmed. What does she say? She says, For God has looked on the humble estate of His servant. She says, Behold, from now on, all generations are going to call me blessed. The rest of human history is going to remember what God did through Mary and recognize her as blessed and favored by God and the fact that we are continuing to recount these stories, to look at these texts, is the truth of what she's said here. Elizabeth also says this. She says, and, and, and manifests her heart, where she says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should visit me? And then Mary says, he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. You see, God saw and knew and understood the position in society that Mary was from. He saw her, he knew. This is not the woman that any of us would probably choose that we would say, oh, you know what? We need someone you know, to, to carry out this important task to be the mother of the Messiah. Who should we find? It wasn't going to be this 14, 15-year-old teenage girl. But God said, I'm going to choose you. In fact, throughout this whole story, we see that God uses the most unlikely means to bring about His plan. Right? If you go back and you even read through the genealogies of Matthew and John, you, you see just these obscure figures and these, these unexpected twists and turns throughout that that God brings about the birth of Jesus. We see Him using barren women who would, who would kind of be the ones viewed as useless in society. He uses the relationship of Mary and Joseph, who from the outside, this looks like a scandal. In a little bit, we're going to be introduced to shepherds who are kind of the outcasts and, and, and those that were despised in society and in culture. We even get Eastern mystics coming in and, and declaring and giving, giving recognition of Jesus as king. From a Jewish perspective, these are all the wrong characters in the story. But yet God looked down on the place of Mary, and He said, yep, I'm going to use you. And it's just a reminder that God uses the lowly, He uses the insignificant, He uses the unexpected to bring about His grace and His mercy into this world. And Mary recognizes this. That's why she says, He who is mighty has done great things for me. Do you see how she rightly assesses herself in relationship to God? Both Mary and Elizabeth realize that they have done nothing to deserve this privileged position. They simply have received the grace of God in abundance. And it's actually their humility in this moment that allows them to respond with praise. It is because they have been brought to a place of humility that they are in a place and a position to actually respond in praise to God. It's because they don't think so highly of themselves as if they were the perfect ones to accomplish this task. As though Mary raised her hand saying, yeah, I can certainly do that. I can be Jesus' mom. No problem. I'm, your, I'm, I'm the girl for the job. But no, if, if she had seen herself like that, then she would be doing God a favor. She'd be helping God out in His redemptive plan. And it's always a posture of pride and of self-confidence that will completely undermine a heart of worship. You see, when we don't recognize God's grace to us, but we think that His favor towards us is something that we have earned, 
or it's just something that we've deserved, if we think He just owes it to us, then we have no reason to praise Him. But if we recognize the unmerited favor that has been lavished upon us through Christ, then we have no other recourse than to worship, to recognize what God has done for us. And Elizabeth and Mary both understand that in this moment. And so as we continue to declare, as Mary said, that all generations would, that she is blessed, we are not piling praise upon her, but we are continuing to marvel alongside of Mary and to praise God for His glorious purpose that was fulfilled in a lowly first century Jewish teenage girl. And so her song continues to declare who God is. She says that He is the Mighty One. This is language that takes up the Old Testament imagery of the, of the warrior God. The One who comes and fights for His people. She declares that His name is holy. Here in, the, in this text, she highlights God's otherness from us and yet how He has divinely condescended to us. She declares then that His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, she reminds us that it's a humble heart that flows out of a recognition and a fear of God. And the song then contrasts these different groups. And what we see in verses 51 to 53 is kind of the upheaval of the natural order of things that's brought about through Jesus' coming. And so he contrasts these groups of the proud and the lowly, the hungry and the rich, the mighty and the weak. It says that he has shown great strength with his arm and he's scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, but he's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry, but the rich have been sent away empty. And in these stanzas, we see the irony of God's kingdom, and that's what Mary rightly perceives here. She's saying it's, it's those who think much of themselves, those who see themselves as the mighty ones. It's them who will be shown to be weak. They will be brought low, but it's the humble that will be exalted. And this is the pattern of, of life and, that, that we see throughout the Scriptures, that we see God even exemplifying for us. In the Old Testament, we read passages like this, that, that though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. It says, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. This is how God works. He lowers the lofty, and he, and he raises up high the humble. What's beautiful is that He doesn't just demand this of us, but this is actually how He acted toward us. And it's this pattern of humility that is at the heart of the incarnation. Right? This is, this is what the Apostle Paul brought out and articulated in Philippians chapter 2, where he told us that, that because Jesus was in the very form of God, he then did not see that as something that he needed to hold on to and, and use and leverage for his own advantage. But he's saying that it, it was Jesus' very godness that motivated and freed him to act in humility towards us, to actually take on humanity. 
saying because he was God, he already possessed everything. He already possessed all glory. He had nothing else that he was trying to gain for himself, so therefore it put him in a place where he was able to pour himself out for us and to act in humility, take on human form, be born as a man, and give his life in our place. And when we realize that that God will exalt us in Him, as we are in Christ and united to Him, true glory and true exaltation is only found in Him, it's then that we are free to actually approach all of life from a posture of humility. Because we're not trying to, to make a name for ourselves because God has already lifted us up and seated us in the heavenly realms. We already possess everything. So how can we not live to see others' needs as more significant than our own? And when we realize that God is doing this through us, only then can we be in a place like Mary to be able to understand the right response here. And Mary gets this. She knows that it's those who are hungry, those who need God to feed them, who will be filled. But it's the rich, those who trust in their wealth, who think that they have built everything on their own labors, it's those who will be shown to be empty-handed in the end. So the good news is that if you think you are in a place of low position, that just might be the place where God will meet you. And Mary's song is then a reminder to us of God's heart for the lowly, which ultimately is all of us. If we actually recognize who we are in relationship to God, that we are all needy, We are all the poor. And if we can look past our human inclination to make much of ourselves and to see ourselves as pretty great, if we can rightly assess ourselves in relationship to God, then we can be freed from the worship of ourselves and actually be drawn to let our souls magnify God, our Savior. And then Mary gives us these last stanzas in which she speaks of the fulfillment of God's promises. She says that this God has helped Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. Christmas reminds us that God is true to His promises. That He's faithful. That He has not abandoned them, but He will keep His word. And so do you see how this entire song is, is really just a minimizing of Mary and an exaltation of God? See, in the incarnation of Jesus, God has drawn near to us. He has entered into the human condition. And what is the only response when we come into the presence of God when He draws near to us? It's to be humbled by His glory. If we take a proud posture toward our relationship with God, then we actually might be led to see Christmas as something in which we celebrate the things that we've done, the good year that we've had in our business, the, the gifts that we can afford, the family that we've built, rather than really just seeing it for what it is, a celebration of the gifts that we have been graciously given. Have you ever had to try to buy a gift for the person that kind of has everything. Just how difficult that can be. You know, they, anything they want, they just get themselves, they, they buy it themselves. 
Nothing that you can afford is actually going to impress them. It's, you know, if you get them you know, a watch or anything, they already have a whole uh, you know, bunch of them lying around. They already have the nicest car. They already have everything. If, if you ever have to buy for someone like that, it could be really difficult. But I'm always struck by, you know, every year we do this kind of Operation Christmas Child, you know, thing and this big Samaritan's Purse giving thing where they send these boxes around the world to, to kids in need in third world countries and all. And if you look in that box, none, not, most of the time in those boxes, it's not going to press any of us. It's not anything on your wish list. But it's amazing when you hear the stories of just how impactful or how amazing or how, how thankful a child can be when they receive a box like that. With just silly little trinkets and toys, a pair of socks, they can be blown away by that. Because they're in a place, in a position where they can recognize the significance of it. So Mary's song reminds us of who Christmas is for. This song reminds us of who Christmas is for. That Christmas is for the weary. It's for the broken. It's for the poor and the hungry. It's for those who long for something more, who long for a better day, who see the brokenness of the world and the darkness around us and long for things to be made right. It's not for the self-sufficient or for those who don't need anything. But it's those who long for God's presence. And it's only as we together recognize our humble condition, allow ourselves to be humbled before the very presence of God and the fact that He has entered into our world, taken on human flesh, lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, died in our place to rescue us from our sin and from the curse of this world. It's only when we recognize that and are humbled by it that we are actually put in a place and we're in a position and have a posture where we can accurately respond to God's goodness, His grace, and praise Him, to have our souls magnify Him, to recognize Him as our Savior, and to pour out our hearts for His goodness, for His grace, and His love that's been graciously given to us. So let's reflect on Mary's song even this week. Allow us to be humbled by it, and from that place of humility before God to respond with the only, the only response that is appropriate, that is necessary, a heart of worship and praise. Let's pray together. Father, You are the Mighty One. You are the One who has done great things for us. You are the one who works through the most unlikely means to bring about your love and your goodness and your redemption into this world. I pray that we would not lose sight of that. I pray that, that these familiar stories and these familiar truths would, would just uh, be renewed in our hearts and in our minds. Let us see it. Let us not become numb to it, but let us have our hearts stirred and our affection to know that you, the Holy One, the Righteous One, have stepped down so that we can be drawn near. And I pray that we would enter into your presence, be humbled by it, and have, have our hearts drawn to just magnify you, to erupt in praise in our, in, our, in our lives every day as we behold you, as we recognize what we've been given. Let us not just try to put up decorations on our life and a facade of happiness, but let us find true hope and lasting joy 
because of what you have done for us. Pray that you would cultivate this spirit of praise in us, not just today on Sunday, but every day in our lives as we seek to follow you. We thank you, we love you, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.